Let's pray together. Lord, your word is a light to our feet, a lamp to our path. Guide us on our journey today through your word and in our life's journey in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning. If you're new to Park Street Church, you may not know that for three years almost, we have been without a senior minister. We've had some crack teams working on this, seeking and searching, and we've had delays. But God's delays are always wise. God has kept his cards close to his chest these last three years. Last Sunday, he put them all out on the table. And we saw together how the Holy Spirit had confirmed Mark Booker as our next senior minister of Park Street Church. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. We celebrate, we rejoice in our topsy-turvy, turny journey that we're on together. Mark's gospel that we're looking at these few months also has a journey, a quest, if you like, of a prophet without honor. First eight chapters, he's on his way to Jerusalem. The last eight chapters, he's on the way to the cross. But if you take a step back, you realize something else is happening in Mark's gospel. In fact, what's happening as we take a step back is that this prophet without honor is not simply a wandering rabbi, a peasant sage who's going around the ancient Near East. He is, in fact, the God of Israel. He is, in fact, the God of the Old Testament who's shown up in the neighborhood who's arrived in Nazareth, who's arrived in Israel, and he's on a quest. And his quest is a second exodus, a new exodus, in which he is calling a new Israel reconstituted around himself rather than the Torah, and that he is walking with them to the cross, and ultimately to glory, to the new Jerusalem. So the question for you this morning is what does Mark chapter 6 possibly have to say to you, to say to me, to say to us today? What does Mark chapter 6 possibly, 2,000 years ago that it was written, have to say to us? As a church, we're about to enter a new period, a period of momentum, expectation, anticipation, and perhaps you in your own personal life are facing a crossroads or some challenges or some opportunities. Think of the Martindales entering a new season of married life, of family life. What can this chapter say to you, to me? I think it can say two things. The first is about rejection. And the second is about multiplication. Verses 1 to 6 deal with rejection and disappointment. It gives a dose, if you like, of realism to this quest 
on this new exodus. But then in verses 7 through 13, we read of multiplication and hope. So let's take a look together at our passage to see what we can learn from Scripture. Verse 1, Jesus left there and went to Nazareth, accompanied by his disciples. Nazareth, John 1, what good can come out of Nazareth? This Nowheresville, this obscure place, it's not even mentioned in the Old Testament, in the Mishnah, in the Talmud. It's kind of like some obscure nowheres town in New England or anywhere USAville. Often these small towns get really excited when a daughter comes back who's accomplished something or a son of that town has come back. It was true for my, the small town where I went to high school in England, Shrewsbury, England. Nobody's really heard of it. And the school, Shrewsbury School, is not a famous school. But the local government and the trustees of the school want to tell the world. They want to say, let us tell you who came to this high school. Charles Darwin came to my high school. They built a big monument to Charles. But what they don't tell you is he was only there for a short period of time. And every day he was there, he hated it. It was horrible. He wanted to get out as quick as possible. <laughs> when it was Sabbath, he began to teach them. And many who heard him were amazed. They said, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't Mary's son? Isn't this the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. No one questioned the power of his insight, his teaching, his doctrine. No one questioned that or the power, the impact of his miracles. No. Their question was with credentials, his resume. John 7, 15 says, where did this man get this learning since he hasn't studied? In Hebrew, there's a technical term for an apprentice of a master that signals someone who is in training with some eminent rabbi, but who was it? It didn't add up. So perhaps his family, that perhaps that was the source. You say, isn't this Mary's son? It was usual in Jewish culture at that time to reference a male child by the father. Not sometimes the mother, but generally it was the father. And there's some ambiguity here in the text. Is this a slight dishonoring of him, or is this an outright insult? I mean, you know about Mary, Mary's son. And then they talk about the brothers. And we know from John 7, 5, that his brothers did not believe in him during his lifetime. It wasn't until afterwards that James was martyred and possibly Judas was involved. So where did, where did this come from? What? It just doesn't compute. And yet they are amazed at his teaching. Well, when you read that amazed, I'm not sure what went through your mind, what was in your heart. When I read those words, I thought amazed, impressed. This is good. And then as I began to look at other parts of Scripture, how the same word is used, Luke 2:48, for example, Mary and Joseph were astonished, they were amazed when their 12-year-old son was lost at the temple, but it wasn't 
they, they were impressed. They were incensed. They were indignant. So that the tone here, the, the emotional energy here is, how dare you? How dare you come back to our community in the center of our religious worship and lecture us? So we see those who are closest to Christ, even his own blood, his culture, his ethnicity, his social and cultural framework, his, his national network, those closest to him were farthest away from him, rejecting him. And Mark signals this even more deeply in the, in the Greek of verse 4 and 5. He uses, when he's, Jesus says, a prophet only, only in his hometown and among his relatives and his own household is a prophet without honor. And Jesus couldn't do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few people and heal them. Mark is signaling using this point-counterpoint technique in discourse, where you negate something and then you have an exception for the purpose of highlighting the exception. The exception here is not so much the dishonoring of the prophet, but rather the location. It was here, in this location, at this time, in this place, that he was rejected. And to the alert reader, it signals a memory of another prophet who comes to the home base, who comes down the mountain to his people, to the very center of their community, and he is rejected, and his doctrine is dismissed, and he is dishonored, as in Exodus 32, they worship the golden calf. It's a replication of that story. Well, look at verse 6. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Christ was amazed at the lack of faith. Remember, Christ, a prophet, a prophet says, thus says the Lord, but Christ says, truly, truly, I say to you, He's greater than Moses. He was amazed. There are only two places in the New Testament that he's amazed. One is here in Mark 6. The other is in Luke 7, 9. Here, those closest are farthest. It is an irony because in Luke 7, 9, you have someone who is farthest but is closest. Have someone who's not even from Nazareth, not even a Jew, not even a rabbi or a high priest or part of the Sanhedrin or any part of that religious sort of ecosystem. No, he's an outsider. And worse than that, he's an oppressor. He's a Roman and he has blood on his hands. He says, even in Israel, I have not found such great faith. So we see the outsider who is closer and the insider who is farther away here in Nazareth. And rejection of the gospel, rejection of Christ, can have many causes. We've seen as we read together through Mark's gospel that there were demons in chapter 1, verse 34, that rejected him. And in chapter 3, verse 5, we see that the hardness of heart, the stubbornness of the will, the internal infrastructure of the people's souls was such that they rejected him. And then we see in chapter 4, verse 15, that Satan comes and takes the word of God so it can't get root, it can't really get into the soil, down into the permafrost, it really can't get to the depths to provide the type of change, the type of vitality and life in the people because Satan takes the word and he plucks it out. And then we see in chapter 4, verse 18 and 19, how the deceitfulness of wealth chokes the word, strangles it, 
like those police officers in North Africa who were strangling a Muslim believer in Christ, strangling, it strangles the, the, the effectiveness of the Word of God. There are so many things in the Gospel that lead to rejection of Christ. And we might say today that there are all manner of possible reasons and causes why people reject Christ. It might be you were raised in a Christian home and your parents would come home on Sunday and everything was dandy, but Monday morning, boy, Monday through Saturday, it's like a war zone. Saw the hypocrisy. Or maybe you visited a church and you met some people at coffee time afterwards and sort of, these, there's a real coldness here, there's real judgmentalism here. Or maybe it's meeting church leaders and read about it in the papers or online and see corruption or immorality. So many, so many possibilities for rejection. I don't know where you are today. I think of Fred Rogers and his inimitable quote, where he says, life is deep and simple, but our society, our society is shallow and complicated. And it is that complication of modern life that tends to distract us from some of the primary and foundational questions and issues of our lives. Or going further, thinking of the work of Charles Taylor in McGill University in Canada, how he talks about a malaise, a malaise in our flat world, a world that has left God out of the public sphere, has left God out of the private sphere, has left God out of the cosmos, out of the universe, has left God out of the internal world, and yet, and yet, lurking within, there is a faint memory of a hope of something transcendent, of something eternal, something that we feel viscerally, but we can't quite put our fingers on it, something there. As one contemporary author put it, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. And so Christ was rejected in his hometown. Christ was ordinary looking. He had no beauty that we desire him. He was like a root out of dry ground, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Rejection is something we should not be surprised about. But there is hope. Look at verse, the end of verse 6, when Jesus then goes around teaching in the villages. There's a shift here, a subtle shift from Nazareth to the villages, from urban to rural, from city to the wasteland, if you like. And again, it harkens back to that illusion of another prophet who went around, who went around, in fact, for 40 years in the wilderness. And yet here, it's not a prophet who says, thus says the Lord. It is a prophet who says, I am God. Truly, truly, I say to you. And he calls them to himself in verse 7, calling the 12 to himself. He sends them out in pairs and gives them authority to cast out demons. And what the disciples are doing is they're replicating. They're not innovating. They're replicating what Christ has already been doing. And they're extending and multiplying his work, his work of the gospel across Israel. And it reminds me of the fundamental work 
of a missionary. Missionary is to cross a cultural boundary and to disciple and to evangelize. And a missionary is not to innovate, but to extend and multiply the existing work that Christ has been doing. And we've heard this extraordinary story of Paul and Michelle Martindale of being called by God over 30 years ago. And today, there are literally over 30,000 people who know the gospel as a result of the work that God has done, and he gets the glory for that. This is amazing in the history of the Middle East. I also think of Mike and Caroline, another couple of our missionaries who are serving in the Middle East through a media ministry. The ministry is unique. It, it enables um, Arabs from North Africa, could be in Mauritania or Libya, through Egypt, Yemen, Saudi, Jordan, that if they have questions, they can contact this website and someone will engage with them. And a couple years ago, they had a, a text message, because there's a phone number at the bottom, you can text in your questions. And it was from Yemen. It was from a young man from a conservative family in Yemen. They were wealthy, they had property, and they used their property to stash weapons from Al-Qaeda. And when he texted them, he said, I'm from Al-Qaeda, will you be willing to meet with me? You can imagine the mission team is like, whoa, <laughs> what are we going to do here? Well, it turns out this young Yemeni man from a high-standing family had been sent, his family thought they wanted to invest in him, they, they sent him to learn English. This is a sort of backstory to this. They sent him to learn English in India. It turned out that when he was learning English and he had to stay with the family there, that they were, in fact, a Christian family. So you have an Al-Qaeda member learning English from a Christian family in India. And he resolved in the beginning that he would assassinate them because they were infidels, and that was the right thing for him to do. But a strange thing happened along the way. As he was learning English in India, he noticed a certain sort of peace. He couldn't quite put his finger on it. There was this peace that came upon him. And so by the end of his studies, he decided not to continue with his original plan. But he returned to Yemen, and there with his father continued his life. And on one occasion, they were watching television together, and it was an Arab Christian program in Yemen. And his father, a devout Muslim man, was lambasting that, that Christian on that television. How dare he, how betraying, betraying your country, betraying your culture, your history. And so the son chimed in, insulting, and, and with all the invective that they could muster against this man on the television. Well, it so happened that as a result of this TV program, they realized that Christ had come to die. That Christ had come to die for Arabs, he'd come to die for Africans, he'd come to die for Asians, he'd come to die for Westerners. He'd come to die on a cross for the sins of the world. But Muhammad, he came, and then he asked his followers to die for his glory. Well, this sort of struck them. A little bit later in Yemen, their mother, his mother, got sick, and they decided that she needed to be evacuated to get medical treatment. So they took her, the father and the son, to another country to get expert medical treatment, much in the way that in Boston, many Muslims will come to Boston to get medical treatment because of the amazing resources of our hospitals and health services here. He didn't come to Boston, by the way. But he, he went to another country, and he said, well, I want to meet with this, the guys from this website. So he texted them again, set it up. And just the night before they went to have a meeting, the father had a dream. 
And in the dream, Christ revealed himself to the father of this Yemeni family. And he said, this is your last chance. This is your opportunity to believe in me, to follow me, to worship me, to love me. If you don't take this chance, when you go back to Yemen, you'll lose everything. And so the next day, when they met with these Christians, they did, in fact, give their lives to Christ and follow him. Now, here's the point. Christ is already at work in the Muslim world. Christ is working through ordinary people called to an extraordinary vision. Christ will continue his work. It's to be replicated. Well, in our text, we see in verses 8 and 9 that he gives an instruction to the disciples. He says, take nothing for your journey except a staff, no money, no bread, no belt. And he says, put shoes on your feet and don't take an extra tunic. In other words, just the basics. Just the basics. And it's, in some ways, it's an allusion back to Exodus 12, 11, where Moses says to the Israelites, this is how you are to eat. You are to have a belt fastened, sandals on your feet, a staff in your hands, and you're to eat quickly, because this is the Lord's Passover. Yet here, one greater than Moses is saying, there's a greater Passover. There's a greater exodus. And so it requires urgency and simplicity to get on with the job of replicating the work that he has already initiated. Well, the second instruction that Christ gives is in verse 10 and 11. And he says, he tells them how to behave. He says, when you enter a house, stay there until you leave the town. If a place doesn't welcome you or listen to you, wipe the dust off your feet. Shake the dust off your feet when you leave that town as a witness against them. Well, what he's saying here is that the disciples are not to sponge on the local community. They're not to be parasites. They're not to milk people. They're not to manipulate people or guilt people. But neither are they to compromise the integrity of the message, the seriousness of the gospel. When he talks about dusting the, the, shaking the dust off his feet, it's a, it's, a, it's a reference that the Jews would understand. Because if they left Israel and went to another country, perhaps Syria or other parts of the Greco-Roman world, and returned back, the first thing they would do is to wipe the dust off their feet. Why? Because they were contaminated. They were polluted. They were coming back to the Holy Land, God's land. So they must eradicate and eliminate. And so what the disciples are doing here in the villages is they're saying, when the gospel is rejected, they're to wipe the dust off their feet. They're to treat this village as if it is contaminated and polluted and worse than a pagan territory. Well, Jesus tells them what to take, how to behave. And then Mark, at the end of the passage, summarizes, sort of gives a mission report in verse 11 and 12. And I think as we look at this closing two verses of this passage, we can possibly see some applications, or at least some implications for us today in our quest, in our journey, as we journey individually and as we journey as a church. And I think there are three things here we can look at. First of all, to be faithful. In verse 11, it says, then they went out and preached that people should repent. 
They cast out many demons. They healed the sick. They anointed them and healed many. Now, throughout Mark's gospel, the disciples are not held up as exhibit A, as an example to follow. No. They squabble, they fight, they're jealous, even satanic in their thinking in Mark 8.33. You have in mind the things of men, not the things of God, as Christ rebukes Peter. No. The disciples throughout the Gospels are not held up as a model. They're in fact an obstacle often to the progress of the Gospel. And yet here in Mark 6, we see them as faithful. They are faithfully doing what Jesus has told them to do in his name, relying on his resources, relying on his name. And I think there's a word here for us. We can procrastinate, we can get all our eyes dotted and our T's crossed and hope we get everything in order, but Jesus is calling us even today to be faithful to him. Whether you live in Medford or whether you live in Lexington or Quincy or Braintree, whether you live in Beacon Hill or Downtown Crossing or the Millennium Tower, wherever you live, you can be faithful today. Faithful in what Jesus has called you to do, not in, not in your name, not in the name of the church, not in the name of an organization, in the name of Christ. He is calling his disciples to be faithful, to get on with the job. Well, the second thing he has here is to be balanced. To be balanced. If you notice, there's this tripartite division, threefold division between teaching, exorcism, and healing. And it provides, I think, a balanced view of mission and ministry in the world today. Jesus has been teaching, and we know from earlier on in the, in the Gospels and other parts of the New Testament that the communication of biblical truth is not simply the public proclamation of the word. But it is also, as Colossians 3.16 tells us, to keep the word fresh in our hearts, the word of Christ within you. That in our, in our discussion with others, our interactions with others, we are to infuse our speech with the word and the beauty and the truth and the power of God's word. But also, those who are trained counselors or mentors or bloggers or journalists, to use their words as if speaking the very words of God in 1 Peter 4, 10 to 11, using the, the opportunities that God gives to us to communicate biblical truth in so many different ways. So teaching is a, a, an essential and a primary avenue for the ministry and the mission of the disciples here in Mark 6 and throughout all history. But we can also say as we turn to exorcism, as he says, he gives them authority in his name to cast out demons. Perhaps for us as New Englanders, Bostonians, is something that makes us a little bit uncomfortable. We may have to learn from our brothers and sisters from Africa or Asia or Latin America the nature of spiritual warfare. Ephesians 6 tells us our warfare is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and principalities. It is a legitimate aspect of authentic Christian mission and ministry is spiritual warfare. We know St. John, who translated the Bible into Latin in the fourth century, left the cities in Egypt to go into the desert. Why? Because, not because he was afraid of the cities, but he was on, wanted to go to the front lines where the battle was the fiercest. He was taking on the demons in the desert. And so spiritual warfare is a legitimate plank, if you will, in this threefold mission of the disciples. But there's another one, and that is healing. We know from James 5.14 that the elders were called to anoint the sick, and that is a, an honored practice throughout the history of the church. And it could be for physical healing that the Lord in his grace and mercy may, may choose to heal. 
But we shouldn't restrict healing simply to physical healing. There may be relationships that are broken. Perhaps you, in the last two or three years here at Park Street Church, have had relationships that have been broken or fractured. And now is an opportunity to ask the Lord to help you to be reconciled, first to your Maker, your Redeemer, and secondly, to your sister or to your brother. But there can also be a healing nature of us emotionally or psychologically, that we are disordered in our desires. As Augustine said, we are fragmented as individuals. We are different parts of ourselves that need to be honed, that need to be massaged, put together as the Holy Spirit works in our lives. That we are convicted of our sin, but we're also conformed to Christ. And so there is this deeper work of healing in our emotions, in our psychology. It's a legitimate part of gospel work, teaching spiritual warfare and healing. Well, we are to be faithful, we are to be balanced, and thirdly, we're to be hopeful. 1 Corinthians 1, 26, Paul says, remember what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise, not many of you were of noble birth or influential, but God chose the weak to shame the strong. God chose the foolish to shame the wise. There's tremendous hope in this. We did not choose him. He chose us that we should bear fruit. He chose us before the foundation of the world. On our quest, there will be rejection. There will be disappointment. But look who we're following. He was rejected. He gave up his honor. He showed the world that it was more noble to suffer for doing what is right and true and good that has shaped civilization for the last 2,000 years. He showed the Muslim world that it's, it's good and right to give up your honor for the basis of others, something that speaks in an honor-shame culture across the Islamic curtain that we see in the world today. Yes, there is hope in our quest. There are many twists and turns on the journey together and individually, and yet, and yet we look to one who was a prophet who was dishonored. One who gave up his honor, who gave up his glory out of love. We love because he first loved us. And he was crucified on a cross, raised, vindicated, ascended, ruling in heaven one day to return in glory. And he will make all things new. He will create a new heaven and a new earth, new bodies, new resurrection bodies, new hope, new worship. And life will be eternally what he has, from the very beginning, had in mind. And all his cards will be on the table. Let's bow our heads and pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the way, the truth, and the life. We pray for the Islamic world, 900 million people today who have very little access to your word and truth and life. We thank you and we praise you for the million or so in Iran today who know the name of Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for those in Afghanistan and Indonesia, and we think of those in Yemen and Egypt and Jordan, Mauritania, Lebanon. Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters across the Muslim world, that they may be encouraged that you have suffered for them and help us to learn from them in our comfort, in our complacency, in our materialism. 
Help us to learn from those who suffer, to see the face of Christ in their suffering, in their blood, in their sweat, and their tears. Humble us, Lord, that you may be glorified in this church, in this city, and that the world, though it may reject you, may see your glory and may be readied and prepared when you come back, because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.